0: Well, our scripture passage for today is Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 42. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 42. Okay, So, in it, we read Jesus saying, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. And you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven give and it will be given to you a good measure pressed down shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap for with the measure you use it will be measured to you he also told them this parable can the blind lead the blind will they not both fall into a pit The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask that you will speak what you want to speak directly to us, Lord, I pray that you will calm our anxious bodies. You would bring our focus and attention to you. And then if at any point we get distracted, that you will help us to have compassion on ourselves and see it as another opportunity to bring our attention back to you. Lord, I I really ask, I really ask, Lord, that you will humble us as we listen to this message, that we wouldn't have the attitude of, um, yeah, my friend needs to hear that. Yeah, my spouse needs to hear that. Yeah, my kids need to hear that, that we would have the attitude of, I need to hear this. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, church, As you know, we are currently in a vision series, in which we are looking at the vision of our church by asking what is Jesus' vision for his church? So at the ending of the book of Matthew, in chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, we see that Jesus' vision of his church is discipleship. Before he ascended into heaven, he gave his disciples what has since become known as the Great Commission. He said to them, "'All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age.'" That's the mission that the Lord Jesus gave to us, his people, his church. So to put it very simply, the vision that Jesus gave to his church was that they would be disciples of Jesus, inviting those around them into discipleship to Jesus. And as we've seen since the beginning of this series, to be a disciple of Jesus means that you've arranged your life around three goals. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus did. Now what do all three of these goals have in common? Jesus. It's usually a good answer at church. Now, if you're here today and you think, discipleship is not for me, what I want you to see is that you already are a disciple. The question is, of who? Who am I a disciple of? To put it another way, whose name do you find replacing the name of Jesus when it comes to those three goals of discipleship? When it comes to discipleship, it's not so much a question of if you will be a disciple, but of who you will be a disciple of. And according to Jesus, you will either be a follower of him or you will be a follower of the world around you. Those are the two options according to Jesus. You will either be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did, or you will be with the world, become like the world, and do what the world does. That's it. According to Jesus, those are the only two options that we have. His way or the world's way. Look at John chapter 15, verse 18 through 19. Jesus told his disciples, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. He didn't say disliked. He said hated. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. According to Jesus, there is a drastic difference between his way and the world's way. And what he taught and lived looks very different from what the world teaches and lives. But let me, let me just show you very specifically the differences. Jesus taught and lived rest and trust. The world teaches and lives hurry and exhaustion. Jesus taught and lived communion with God. The world teaches and lives distraction and escapism. Jesus taught and lived holiness and self-control. The world teaches and lives indulgence and immorality. Jesus taught and lived peace and quiet. The world teaches and lives anxiety and noise. Jesus taught and lived courageous faithfulness to God's guidance. The world teaches and lives unfaithful compromise. Jesus taught and lived love and death. The world teaches and lives Radical Individualism and Superficiality. Jesus taught and lived justice, mercy, and reconciliation. The world teaches and lives injustice and division. Jesus taught and lived contentment. The world teaches and lives consumerism. Jesus taught and lived hospitality. The world teaches and lives Hostility. which of those sounds more attractive to you? The way of Jesus or the way of the world? I think that's an easy one, personally. Now, I want you to look at this list, think about this list, and honestly ask yourself, without judgment, without condemnation, which one do I currently look more like? I read that description of Jesus in the world. Which one do you currently look more like? Notice, I didn't say when you were in high school. Notice, I didn't say when you get older. I said currently. In other words, whether you identify as a disciple of Jesus or not, would you say you currently look more like the world or like Jesus? Now, as someone who has been following Jesus for a long time, when I look at this comparison between Jesus and the world, I do see that what Jesus taught and lived has taken shape and form in me and grown in me. But if I'm honest, I also see that the world is often reflected in my life as well. I have to be honest. Now, I'm guessing that most of you, if not all of you, feel the same way too you do feel like, yeah, Jesus is starting to take shame and form his way of life. But yeah, there is a lot of the way of the world still reflected in what I say and in what I do. Well, look, the good news today is that we don't have a Savior in spite of this, but because of this. If it wasn't this way, why would we even need rescue, healing, saving, The Lord knows we need guidance and training to become more like him. He already knows that. So like in the passage we were looking at today, Jesus makes it clear that what sets him apart from the rest of the world is what? His love. His love stands head and shoulders, and even that is too small of a picture uh, to convey how his love stands out from the rest of the world. His love sets him apart from the rest of the world. And for those listening to Jesus in this passage, he also makes it clear that his love is not something he is merely calling us to watch, but something he is calling us to join in on as his disciples. So what does it look like to become more like Jesus and less like the rest of the world? Like, what does that actually look like? Jesus actually shows us what that looks like in our passage today. keep in mind that the way you read it will greatly influence how you feel about it. So look, if you read what Jesus said in this passage, as we often read the Bible, merely as a set of rules and instructions, then yeah, you will, of course, be intimidated by it. Like, whoa, what? Can't do that. But if you read what Jesus says as a way of life that Jesus can and does lead us into, then you will be challenged and inspired by it. That's the goal of Jesus here. The goal of Jesus here is to challenge our view of what it really looks like to represent him to the rest of the world and to guide us into this new and better way of life than the world could ever dream of giving us. Now, it's easy to read Jesus' words in this passage and think that he is calling us to show no regard or care for our own lives. you ever feel like, when you read this passage, you're like, well, Jesus, are you saying you just don't care about my own life? You know, especially when he tells us to turn the other cheek when someone slaps us. Like, here, slap this one too. Or to withhold our shirt if somebody takes our jacket. Or to not demand back what's taken from us. Jesus, are you saying I don't matter? I should just not care about myself? But if we read it that way, we're really missing the point of what he's getting at here. That's not the point. The point Jesus is making is not that we shouldn't care about ourselves but that we should seek the good and the welfare of others even when it does not appear to benefit us in the moment. That is what Jesus is saying here. It's not that you don't matter but Jesus is emphasizing the viewpoint that I care for the welfare and the good of others and that is after all what it truly means to love someone do you realize that like when you say i love you or at least when jesus tells us to love our enemies that is what he means by love your enemies we we think that love is a feeling that we need to force like i just need to feel love for my enemies good luck with that but the love jesus is talking about here is a predetermined choice to care for others regardless of if they deserve it or if they ever return the favor. Leon Morris, in his commentary on the book of Luke, he says, There are several words for love in Greek. You know, so we just have one word for love in English, but there's a lot of words for love in Greek. So Jesus was not asking for Storge the Greek for natural affection, just naturally having this affection for someone. He wasn't talking about eros, romantic love, not about philia, the love of friendship. He was speaking of agape, which means love even of the unlovely, love which is drawn out not by the merit in the beloved, but which proceeds from the fact that the lover chooses to be a loving person. That's the word Jesus uses here. That's the the specific word he uses when he says, love your enemies. So what does this love look like for us? Well, according to Jesus, the love we are called to is a love that is not all about me. I didn't say it excludes me, but it's not all about me, but more about we. You see that? Why? Because This is the kind of love that God has shown us. In fact, Jesus points out that God is kind not just to the grateful and the deserving people, but also to, in his words, the ungrateful and the wicked. That's who God is kind to. So who does that include? You. You. We might look at this kind of love that Jesus described and decide we are above it. But scripture makes it clear that you are actually a recipient of it. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, Paul says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, Someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, Lord Jesus makes it clear that if we only love those who love us, and if we only do good things to those who do good things to us, and if we only help those who we expect to help us back, then what we call love is really just another word for ego. But Jesus helps us to tangibly wrap our minds around the way of life he's calling, to, calling us to by telling us, do to others as you would have them do to you. For like, what does this look like? Jesus kind of says, okay, just keep this in mind. Do to others as you would have them do to you. So if you would not like people to rush to conclusions about you, Jesus says don't rush to conclusions about them. If you would not like to be labeled without someone taking a chance to get to know you, don't label someone without taking a chance to get to know them. If you would not like someone uh, to hold your shortcomings over your head, don't hold their shortcomings over their head. Now, does that mean that Jesus doesn't ever want us to hold anyone accountable? You know, some people read this passage that way, like, oh, don't condemn, don't judge, and so we say, well, then what am I supposed to, to do? Well, that's not at all. That's not what Jesus is saying here. But like, Jesus is not calling us to anarchy. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. Look, like, there are times when judgments need to carefully be determined and verdicts thoughtfully given. What Jesus is calling us to hear is a spirit of loving-kindness and justice rather than a spirit of prideful vindictiveness. That's what Jesus is talking about here. I'll give you an example. When I was in the 8th grade, some of you are like, yesterday? No. (laughs) A long time ago. When I was in 8th grade, I remember that I had a teacher that I dreaded seeing every day because she did not maintain her classroom with a spirit of love and justice, but with a spirit of malice towards the students. That was not fun. Although, yeah, there were students who did need to be held accountable, she seemed to care more about punishing us and scaring us rather than correcting us and growing us and helping us. So whenever she disciplined me or another student, she actually had a big, gleeful smile on her face. I remember that, being kind of freaked out by that. Like, this is weird. One day after uh, punishing one of the students in my class, she said with a big smile on her face, I just love seeing people get in trouble. Don't you? And I was like, I want to go home. <laughs> I remember feeling... As a 13-year-old, I remember feeling disgusted and, most importantly, unloved. Like, what is this? I know we're not perfect, but this is, this is not a loving environment. You know, she was not doing to us what she would like to be done to her. What she was displaying to our class was not so much an attitude concerned with we, but an attitude concerned solely with me. You see that? Love, growth, and health could not be cultivated in an environment like that. So look, it's not that Jesus is saying we should not hold people accountable, but that we should do so out of love for them. It's not so much that we hold each other accountable, but how we hold each other accountable that Jesus is talking about. Are we truly seeking the welfare of another person? That is a question Jesus has for us here. That is the love that he's calling us to. But, you know, this is a struggle for us, isn't it? We think that if we were to to truly love people like this, like Jesus said, and seek their welfare, there wouldn't be any welfare left for us. What happens when I give all my welfare out to everybody else? There's not enough love to go around. Well, shouldn't we just look out for ourselves and forget about blessing others? According to Jesus, though, we get out of love what we put into love. Do you see that? That sounds weird, right? Jesus saying we get out of love what we put into love. But think about it. I can talk about exercise until I'm blue in the face. It's not going to do me any good until I exercise. I can watch Food Network until I fall asleep. I'm not going to get to experience that food until I actually eat it. For Jesus, love works the same way. Do you realize that? Look at what he said in verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. To that we say, oh, what? I don't, we don't understand that. We don't, like, what is Jesus talking about here? Look, when when people in those days sold grain in the markets, they would use a measuring container, and when they filled it with grain, they shook it to make more room for grain, and they pressed it all down, and then they added more grain until it was overflowing, and then if you were getting it from them, they they would pour it into your lap. You would pull out your your big outer robe, and they would pour it down into there, and you would carry it around close to you. That is the picture Jesus uses here. So, look, the love God is calling us to is an abundant love that comes from God and comes out of God's abundant love that he has shared with us. Do you see that? We've held out our our little uh, lap, for lack of a better word, and received his love into our lap. And so look, Jesus doesn't want us to merely sit around and read about it, but to experience it in our own lives. So like, whenever I serve my, my wife in, in love, it may not always be convenient for me, but I, I experience love more deeply through that. Do you see that? I'm giving and I'm receiving. Sometimes she will say, thank you for serving me so well, Cody. And I'll say, of course, it's a joy for me. And I'm not just saying that, it really is a joy for me. I really do receive as I give. It's not like, well, Marcella has all the love now. Where's my love? I'm experiencing it as I'm giving it. Now look, in that illustration, that, that was my, my wife. It's very easy for me to like and love my wife. But what about people you don't feel deep love for? What about people you actually feel deep resentment towards? What about people who are unkind and ungrateful? What about people who you think don't deserve your love and forgiveness? I'm sure you can think of plenty of them at school, or at work, or maybe even at church, or at home. And according to Jesus, the same principle applies there, too. You know, I mentioned a few weeks ago a book by Corey Ten Boom called The Hiding Place. And when I mentioned that book, some of you came up to me and told me that that is a favorite book of yours. And I highly recommend that to everyone here The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. But as I said a few weeks ago, in that book, Corey and her family cared for people. Okay, this is taking place in... Uh, The early 1940s in Amsterdam. So, in that book, Corey and her family cared for people by hiding them in their house when the Nazis were looking for them to arrest them. And when the Nazis found out about this, they arrested Corey and her family and placed them in prison. Corey's father died in that prison, and from there, she was taken with her sister Betsy to a concentration camp in which they were verbally, physically, Emotionally and psychologically abused by the guards. Corey's sister also died in that camp. Dad died in prison. Sister died in the concentration camp. And eventually, Corey thankfully made it out alive. But after World War II, Corey went to different churches, sharing her testimony of how the Lord was with her in those prisons and concentration camps. Eventually, she returned to Germany to speak in a church service about her experience. And after the service, she saw someone she did not expect to see. It was actually, well, I'll let you see. She said in the book, It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man, one of the guards, the former SS man who had stood guard At the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrook. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me, so this guard who had abused her At the concentration camp, he came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Bloemendel the need to forgive, kept my hand. At my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. Give your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges. But on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, the love itself. For Corey Tinbroom, she found out that the words of Jesus are actually true. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. She received in full the measure of love she gave. And here's the thing so will you. So will you. I know that's so hard to believe, so many times, but so will you. That doesn't mean people will always love you back. Don't hear me wrong. That's clearly seen in the life of Jesus. But you will experience and reflect the love of God. But, okay, how do we arrive at this kind of love that Jesus is talking about? What do we need? Well, we need exactly what Corey needed. We need a guide. Now look, the religious leaders of that time claimed to be the guides that people needed. But they were actually leading the people further away from God and causing them to look more and more like the rest of the world. They were obsessing over the tiny details that others were getting wrong and neglecting to address the large absence of love in themselves. They were, as Jesus said, looking at the speck of sawdust in their brother's eye and paying no attention to the plank in their own eye. Look at what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 23, 23 verse 23 through 24. Jesus said to them, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. In the Greek that word means actor. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, common, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law—justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. Sound familiar? You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Look, in the end, the Pharisees refused to address the lack of love themselves, and so Jesus referred to them as blind guides. And he asked, can the blind lead the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? According to Jesus, the religious leaders of his day taught what? The way of the world. Their attitude was not loving but self-centered and self-destructive. They were claiming to guide people towards God but leading people into pits along with the rest of the world. And a student is not above the teacher, Jesus said. And as long as the teachers were not able to see, those following them couldn't expect to see either. But into the story comes Jesus. Into the story comes Jesus. And what do we have in Jesus? A guide who can see and give us sight. Why? Because in Jesus, we have God's presence leading us, guiding us, and teaching us right from wrong. In Jesus, we have God's presence caring for our every need, refreshing us when we are weary, and lavishing us with his self-giving love. In John 10, verse 11, Jesus stunningly identified himself as the good shepherd. In Psalm 23, we see that God himself is the good shepherd. And we see what it looks like to be guided under his care. Let me just read to you Psalm 23 so you can see what it looks like, what life looks like following Jesus, being guided under his care. Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is life with Jesus as your guide. What about when you follow the world? What about when you remove the Good Shepherd as your guide, as the world does? You have that option. I just want to read you Psalm 23 without the Good Shepherd, so that you can see life being guided that way. I lack my soul. I walk through the darkest valley. I will fear. Me me in the presence of my enemies my head my cup all the days of my life that is the way of the world that is life without the good shepherd without jesus and thank god in jesus we have our guide the good shepherd and what does the good shepherd say we need now this is the weird part of the sermon, okay? You ready? <laughs> what does a Good Shepherd say we need? It's right here in our text. Training. What? Training? Now we don't talk about this much in church, but this is why we need to Become Like Jesus part two. We don't talk about this much in church. We think that discipleship is one moment in time, right? I'm following Jesus, zap, Well, not so much. When we look at the life and love of Jesus that he's calling us into, we tend to think that it's all about trying harder. How's that working out for you? Probably not. According to Jesus, it's about much more than just trying. Isn't it debilitating to read what Jesus said here and try and realize how far you you fall short? Don't we just give up and we tend to do that? For Jesus, it's not just about trying, it's about training. It's about training. Think about it. If I told you to run a marathon tomorrow, would you just get up and run a marathon through trying? Well, you may try, but you won't make it. I promise you, you Well, Okay, I shouldn't promise that, some of you might. (laughs) I wouldn't. You need to train, right? If you wanted to learn how to play the piano, would you start just playing beautiful music on the piano, like nothing? No! You would need training. So why do we think becoming like Jesus would be any different? We often ask, what would Jesus do? And that's a great question. I love that question. But we hardly ever ask, what kind of lifestyle did Jesus have? Do we ever ask that? Look, like anything you want to grow in, becoming like Jesus takes more than just trying. It takes training. And that is our goal here. That's our goal. That's why we come here. That's our goal here. So look, sometimes when you go to a church and you meet a pastor and you're like, Can I trust this guy? Does he have an an agenda? I just want you to know, I do have an agenda. I absolutely do have an agenda. It's to help you become more like Jesus. That's my agenda. That's my hope for you. That's why I'm here. That's what I'm meant to come alongside you and guide you into. That is a huge part of the role of a pastor. Think about Paul in Galatians chapter 4 verse 19. He said to the people in Galatia, I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. This is not just icing on the cake, becoming like Jesus. This is what it's all about. And this is exactly what we have been talking about the last couple of weeks as a crucial aspect of discipleship. Formation. Who and what are we being formed into? So starting in a couple of weeks and going all the way through the month of May, we're going to be looking at the lifestyle of Jesus week by week so that we can train in it together As opposed to just trying hard to be like Jesus. It's a big difference. Look, Jesus had certain core practices that made up the lifestyle of his life, such as, these these are not all of them, but these are the core ones, Sabbath, prayer, fasting, solitude, scripture, community, service, generosity, and witnessing. In a lot of churches today, it's just kind of like prayer, scripture, the end. No, there's so much more. There's so much more that we see in the life of Jesus that we can join in on. Now, look, I want to be very clear with you, very clear with you, that these practices do not bring you into a relationship with God. Living the lifestyle of Jesus won't make you in right relationship with God. They don't make God love you anymore. By the way, that's not even possible. He couldn't love you anymore than he does. These practices, they certainly don't reconcile you to God. Only Jesus can do that. But look, as disciples of Jesus, we desperately need, in the language of Paul, training in righteousness. We need training, right? I'm tired of just trying. We need training. The goal is not to try really hard to love and live like Jesus. The goal is to offer up our lives each day through these practices and hold space for him to work on us. Look, I want you to see, we are not training for Jesus. We are training with Jesus, and that is discipleship. That's discipleship. So look, What happens as we step into that? As we practice Sabbath together with with Jesus, we will grow into a community of rest and trust in a world of hurry and exhaustion. As we practice prayer together with Jesus, we will grow into a community of communion with God in a world of distraction and escapism. As we practice fasting together with Jesus, we will grow into a community of holiness and self-control in a world of indulgence and immorality. As we practice solitude together with Jesus, we will grow into a community of peace and quiet in a world of anxiety and noise. As we practice reading scripture together with Jesus, we will grow into a community of courageous faithfulness to God's guidance in a world of unfaithful compromise. As we practice being in community together with Jesus, we will grow into community of love and depth in a world of radical individualism and superficiality. As we practice serving together with Jesus, we will grow into a community of justice, mercy, and reconciliation in a world of injustice and division. As we practice generosity together with Jesus, we will grow into a community of contentment in a world of consumerism. And as we practice witnessing together with Jesus, we will grow into a community of hospitality in a world of hostility. This is the way that Jesus wants to train us in so that we can become like Jesus. At the end of the day, the point is not that we can do any of these things like prayer or scripture or fasting, community, whatever. They're they're not the point. They're not the goal. We're We're not here to do those things. The point is that we become people of love like Jesus. That's the point. Now, these practices I just mentioned are not the end goal. They are a means to that end. Do you see that? their means to that end. It doesn't matter how much scripture you know if the goal is not to become a person of love. Just look at the Pharisees. But as we talked about last week, Jesus doesn't just want to take us somewhere. He wants to make us into someone. And like anything, this will take training. But the good news is that we have a guide, a teacher, a trainer. Jesus. And as we continually open up our lives as disciples to Jesus, we can trust that what he said is true. Everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. And may everything we say and do here serve as a means to that end. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are so kind to us. You are so specific in your words to us and in your life given to us in what love looks like. Lord, thank you that we get to be recipients of it every day. Lord, this is a love that cannot be found in the world. It can only be found in you. And Lord, the world desperately needs your disciples to extend it. Lord, we as disciples desperately need to receive it. Lord, help us to soak up and receive your love today. Lord, even when we, for lack of a better phrase, slapped you, Lord, you turn the other cheek even when we cast lots for your garment. You, in other words, gave us your shirt. Lord, even when we took your life, you did not demand it back. You would never call us to do something you haven't already done for us. But we need training, Lord. Please, please, please train us day by day as we just open ourselves up to you to be with you, to become like you and to do what you did. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.